You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and on this episode, I'll be talking to Flex Chapman, co-creator of Kraus House, a decentralized autonomous organization aiming to buy an NBA sports team. Flex discusses Kraus House's ambitious mission to disrupt the traditional and exclusive sports ownership model, finally giving power back to the basketball fan community. Also joining us is Mandy Saban, Stylus's content director, to discuss the key insights emerging from two new Stylus reports on the sports leisure landscape. But first, here's Flex Chapman. Crosshouse is quite simply online collective of basketball fans that want to collectively own and operate an NBA franchise as a DAO. You asked roughly what a DAO means. I'm going to give a cop-out answer. I think we're very much trying to figure that out. I think the first time someone heard of a decentralized autonomous organization or a DAO was in Vitalik's white paper. And he kind of theorized what a organization or a a collection of people that could run and operate solely on the blockchain. So using a trustless way to make decisions or or govern that operation using something like tokens. So we've kind of stuck with the name, but I think it's evolved a little bit. I've heard definitions as simple as a group chat with a bank account, all the way up to really verbose definitions of that. I think it's somewhere in, in between. You know, we consider ourselves just quite simply just an online community, a very digital community, but we use tokens to govern that community, which is a little bit different than I think a typical co-op or a Reddit thread or something like that. So it's a step in sort of the decentralized direction. So when you were inspired by this idea of trying to buy an NBA team, first of all, you know, what motivated that? And second of all, why did you feel like this route was the best way of doing it? I'll start with the the personal anecdote, just long time basketball fan, played my whole life, grew up in the DC area, very much a, a basketball city. And I think that the NBA is the best professional sports league in the world. I think they've done the perfect balance of maintaining the prestige of the league, but also look forward and adapt and kind of look for new ways to innovate more than any other league in the world, quite frankly. So It kind of seemed like a nice target. And then quite simply for the greater purpose, ownership, you watched professional sports leagues, particularly the NBA evolve in so many different ways, right? It's kind of evolved into a player first league, what it's done through media and broadcasting, partnership and brand deals. Everything has evolved so much, but the only thing that has stayed relatively consistent is ownership. Every owner in the NBA has a net worth of over a billion dollars, which is, you know, very small fraction of the, of the population. And I think it's sports inherently just drives so much passion and community. I think that there's a lot of opportunities that franchises and the league alike can benefit by allowing and kind of opening some doors and having some conduit into the team from the fan side of things. And so we just thought that, hey, it's it, the timing might be right to allow fans to kind of participate in some of these decisions. So I think both the timing and I think the passion that already exists inherently in community and the new kind of Web3 tools and primitives, now's the right time to make something like this happen. Because I think there's a lot of symbiotic relationship between the fans and the franchise and the league can benefit from. 
So what do you think, what's the reason why this hasn't happened before? What is the resistance to this? Because I'm assuming there is a lot of resistance. This is a kind of closed shop, right? What do the NBA sort of owners fear from fan ownership? I think there's a few reasons. I think one high context is is really key. I think the owners and things like general management, right? Between the relationships and understanding how to run and operate an organization, there's a lot of things that I think the everyday fan might not know. And I think just because they're so passionate, fans can be pretty, pretty hostile if things aren't going the right way. But I think that there's also a misconception about what fans, I think, want to do and want to participate in. We were guilty of this as well when kind of ideating on the original days of Crosshouse, our minds immediately went to things like general management. Oh, how cool would that be to sign players, trade players, draft players, right? But when you actually peel back the curtain, these are run just like any other business in the world, right? There's accountants, there's lawyers, there's partnership and sponsorship opportunities, right? And so I think there's a lot of ways that I think the fans and the masses could help out and adopt that aren't as intuitive at first to ownership or prospective owners. And so our value proposition shorter term is quite simple. Like I think that we can be the most value additive member on a cap table by simply tapping into our global distributed network of talents working professionals to add value to your franchise in the way that you see fit. So it's not necessarily picking starting lineups, it's taking the conception of fans being one massive pool and drilling into that on a micro level and seeing which fans can add the most value and where we can fit in kind of help. Also worth mentioning, over 50% of our community is international, right? Basketball is a very global game. There's a lot of benefits to tapping into a global distributed network where basketball is the fastest growing league in the entire world. And so there's a lot of opportunities and value add that I think, again, that both the league and teams can benefit by having something like Krauss on sit on the cap table. So you mentioned earlier this idea of tokens for governance. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about this idea of governance and how the, your community works together, what kind of decisions they're making, how that all works. Because I think it's really interesting how you keep this community active, because obviously you have a particular end goal, which is quite hard to reach, but you've been around for a while now and you're keeping your community active and involved. So what does that look like? To take it all the way back, roughly, I think six or seven months after launching, at that point, there was no governance token, just a bunch of diehard Hoops fans in a Discord. I think one of the biggest things that we saw, which was really fascinating, was just the talent of people coming in. We saw executives from Fortune 500 companies. We saw you know founders and early employees from like Web2 unicorns. We saw some creators of Web3 communities all kind of flood into the Discord, really wanting to make this thing happen. And so we said, okay, cool, let's see what we can do. And let's maybe put some resources behind some of these ideas. So we launched a crowdfund that went successful. We raised a thousand ETH in just a few days, sold out of the collection, which at the time was roughly four and a half million dollars. That was used to seed our initial treasury to kind of fund and support some of these early contributors to go make this thing happen. And to answer your question, what we were doing is a very long-term and a novel approach. And so what's great is you had some people who come in kind of advocating for more be more top down, right? Which is like, how do we get the 3 billion NBA fans all over the world to each give us a dollar, right? Like, what does that world look like to go and do this? Other ones wanted to take a more bottom up approach. Hey, let's pick a team. Let's pick a target market. Let's maybe start with some philanthropic initiatives. Let's maybe start with some pro bono work 
prove ourselves and kind of work in that way. And the best part about both those strategies is that nobody's right, but also no one's wrong. We've, we've never seen, the NBA has never seen anything like this. So we wanted to use those resources to kind of experiment and double down on things that work. So in order to do that, to come full circle, is we needed a governance token to help drive some of those decisions. Anyone in the community that's a token holder can put forth a proposal asking for either money from the treasury, other resources, some sort of timeline to, to go accomplish something. And typically how we look at it is that it fits in one of three buckets. It's either leading to quality growth of the community. So how do we attract more talented members? Another one of those buckets is proving legitimacy to the league. One thing we don't want to come off as is like a Wall Street bets, hey, hostile takeover. We want to buy a team and fire the coach. That's not what we're intending to do. So we want to prove ourselves that we're capable of at least some sort of decision making if we sat on the cap table. So that's another thing. And then the third is, is it going to lead to sustainable growth and, and revenue? So we've kind of looked through that lens and ideally it's been more than one of those buckets that I just outlined, but we use our governance token to vote on proposals from members of the community, quite simply. And so when you achieve your goal, what role does the community then play? Because I'm assuming that you have a huge amount of people in this community now. So what role will they be playing? I think what's cool about what we've seen is that we've had people from engineering backgrounds, marketing, founder level, PhD candidates. I remember talking to one early member. She was an anthropology major. And she was like, I never thought I'd be able to use things I learned in college, but these new kind of digital civilizations, I, I think I have some insight on how the long-term structure and operation of how this might work. And I thought that that was fascinating. And so I think we're still very much figuring out what that is. But as far as value add, I think there's a lot of opportunities. Another thing also to mention is that if and when we decide to go more horizontally and get into other sports, there's a lot of like things that can cut horizontally, right? Like we have an awesome kind of video and podcast editor in house. So it doesn't really matter if that's a basketball podcast, a soccer podcast, a football podcast, that person can use their skills across all these different webs. So there's a lot of ways for the community to get involved. And as in regards to what they receive, again, very much still figuring that out, but I think some early candidates, right, is deal flow into actually, you know, buying into to some of these teams all the way from a prestigious team like the EPL or or the NBA down to maybe some lower soccer divisions and kind of everywhere in between. A lot of access points, right, like discussions with players or voting opportunities for those teams and also just governance within Crosshouse itself, decision making to kind of the meta DAO, if you will, Crosshouse and all of its subsequent opportunities. So there's a lot of value that you get from being in Crosshouse across a, a variety of different aspects. And what about from the team's perspective? So you, you buy this team, what are they going to experience that's different from the traditional sort of ownership model? How will it impact them? So it's, it's actually quite different from traditional ownership. I mean, let's all stick with the NBA, for example's sake, but valuations have grown significantly over the past decade. And so you're looking at most of the valuations, right? Even for 1% of a team, that's going to be roughly, you know, $30 million, right? Because valuations are getting to around the 3 billion mark. That's out of reach for, I mean, almost the entire population, right? Only small people have $30 million. That's not something you can find in the couch cushion, right? Like that's a huge, huge amount of money. So they've allowed private equity to kind of come in and sit on the cap table as well. I think in order to do this, right, we have to we have to think of kind of new innovative ways and structures to go do that. So Web3, we've seen offer a new way to not only raise capital, but also 
kind of have a lot of decision-making power back into the franchise. And I think that has to be done with guardrails, right? Like I think, again, because this has never been done before, we have to take our time and really understand, right? So the key part of that is working with an owner that understands its value. And we've got a chance to meet, I think, with like four or five majority owners up until now, all with kind of a varying degree. But for the most part, it's been really well received. They're like, wow, I've never really thought about using the fan base and giving them access or governance in exchange for participation, right? Like imagine what that does for fan engagement, for loyalty, for acquiring new fans outside of the US. But if I were to summarize some of our key findings of sitting with owners and things that kind of, you know, air quote, keep them up at night, right? It's like, how do I get new additional revenue streams into my franchise? How do I acquire new fans? How do I engage my existing fans? And then the fourth is kind of nebulous, right? It's like, what can you guys think of that I'm not thinking of? Is this my technical advisory bench that sits on my cap table that can run ideas by me and, and participate in exchange? I'll give you shared upside and reciprocity in the franchise, right? And so that's kind of a model that is really, really flipped on its head compared to traditional ownership groups, wildly different than a private equity or an individual coming to sit on the cap table. More from Flex in a moment. Now I talk to Stylus Content Director Mandy Saven about two new reports published this week on the Stylus website, exploring the current and future sports leisure landscape. What I really wanted to do here was not only identify some key sports that are currently appealing to people today, but really sort of dig in and explore why this is the case. So we look at everything from golf to pickleball, swimming, surfing, running, hiking, cycling, even girls' football, skateboarding and netball. And then we also looked at new forms of functional fitness and trying to sort of examine what the new fitness festival is. For example, High Rocks, which has gained a lot of traction recently. But really the most interesting and exciting thing that kept emerging through the research was how inclusivity and diversity was really a strong story that needed telling. And in almost every sport, there's a lot being done in the sphere, although there is still a lot to do. But we see brands and organizations really trying to widen the reach. And this is in terms of ethnicity, gender, body size, age, and even capability. Did you find that that was driven by consumers or was it sort of something that's coming from businesses and brands, did you think? I think it's probably started more as demand from people themselves. And when we last looked at this topic some years back, we started to track the emergence of, for example, hiking clubs for black people. And when we started looking further into that, uncovering all the kind of reasons and context of why people of color have always been excluded from hiking communities and embracing the outdoors as their own. And then with this kind of research also kind of going into a sport like swimming. And again, we're seeing the same thing happening there. So yes, we've seen a lot of groups emerge, consumer-led groups influencers really speaking out across social media channels, micro communities forming, people coming together and saying, actually, we're going to claim the sport as our own, even though we don't fit into the mold. Like, for example, now there's a group called Muslim Hikers, and they're saying, yes, we can also enjoy the space and the outdoors. 
And they've actually, I'm not sure if they've designed or they have access to prayer mats that are suitable for the outdoors as well. And they have a lot of fun with it and kind of, you know, play around with signage on the walks and trying to express their identity and claim that space as their own. But I think brands and organizations are also trying to do their bit. I'm very impressed and excited by what's happening in golf, which has traditionally been a sort of white man, middle-class sport. And there's a lot of efforts now being made to include all players, black players, Hispanic players. The sport has actually gained a lot of popularity across Asia and the Middle East as well. So we see a lot of companies and property developers investing in golf courses and really making the sport more accessible. And perceptions are starting to change. Like, for instance, we had a stat about perceptions of golf in Asia, particularly South Korea, and people not seeing it as such an exclusive, inaccessible sport anymore. They're using it more now as something that they can actually tap into and use for networking opportunities or during their leisure time. And we're seeing these sort of attitudes really come across in apparel and equipment and kit, which is being designed to be much more inclusive. The other sort of area that I was really excited about was how all water sports, surfing, swimming, have also really becoming more accessible. If anyone's interested in that, I would recommend watching a a documentary that was released in April this year by Australian sports activist Lucy Small. And she goes to Ghana and meets a collective of black female surfers and skateboarders called Surf Ghana. And it's all about them exploring their relationship with surf and with the ocean and them reclaiming their relationship with these spaces and activities after being marginalized for so long from the sport. What's your key takeaway for brands who are interested in sort of sports innovation? So, I mean, I think a couple of things here. So the obvious one is that sport should be made more accessible for all, whether that's empowering Black communities to hike with confidence in the outdoors or starting an adaptive surf school, which we've seen as well, so that everyone can surf. Or providing running trails that meet all abilities and not making it such a a challenging thing to get involved with. So accessibility across the board and, and considered from every lens of accessibility as well. Um, and then the other thing is that I think so many brands have something to gain by getting involved in sports and fitness, even if you aren't traditionally part of that industry or part of that industry in a very straightforward way. Like we've seen Walmart in the States get involved in pickleball, which is a massive scene now. So they're selling the merchandise so you can buy it, but they're also enabling players to actually play on courts. And I think it's through either some kind of membership program or some sort of affiliation. But once you get those players in and involved with your brand on court, they're going to be even more enticed to go and buy your merchandise as well. And then, you know, even in food and drink, we've seen there's a non-alcoholic drinks brand in the UK called Pentire. And they're basing their whole proposition on outdoorsy drinking. So perhaps after a hike or whilst whilst you're camping and, you know, kind of positioning the product as a perfect accompaniment to those types of, you know, fitness boosting activities. So I think it's really important for brands to not be afraid and get involved because 
there's a wide peripheral spectrum of product and service innovation that can exist outside traditional sport space now because sport and leisure is really part of the everyday individual's life as people want to be healthier and prioritize their well-being and their mental health as well. So it's gone from being quite exclusively geared towards someone who's athletic or sporty to to all of us. Everyone, you know, can be involved in some level and that's the same for brands and retailers as well. The new Sports Leisure Landscape reports are available to members on the Stylus website. If you're not already a member and would like to find out how access to Stylus could benefit your business, email innovation at stylus.com or visit stylus.com slash membership. Now back to my interview with Flex Chapman from Krauss House. So where are you on this journey? How close are you now to fulfilling the dream? I can't go into too much detail around that, but I will say that I'm hoping to have some exciting news shared within the next few months. Say that I'm sometimes reluctant to share this, but I think that, you know, as a founder of not only Krauss House, but even previous companies as well, I think sometimes it's okay to be fully honest and vulnerable and saying there was things that you didn't quite expect to happen. I think the speed in which we're getting in the same room as majority owners and how it's being perceived There's some macro trends that I think are certainly in our favor, but also sitting across from these majority owners and well-respected majority owners, walking them through the value proposition has been eye-opening and honestly giving us a lot of velocity and inertia behind the mission. So as it pertains to the NBA, I hope there's some exciting news to share relatively soon. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking. I hope you enjoyed it and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at We Are Stylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.